This is the part of our gathering where we come together around God's Word, sit under God's Word, open God's Word, so that through it all God might open us up to Himself and His Word. As we do that, we are now in the book of Jonah. We've been in a series that we've called We Are Jonah. We've been working our way through the book. And this week we're in Jonah chapter 4, verses 5 and 8. That's where we're looking at this week, 5 through 8. We've been sort of working our way through the book of Jonah, and as we do so, it feels like we're still climbing up a mountain. Um, Most stories work where you've got this great climax, and then it works its way down to a resolution or conclusion, and they tie up all the loose ends, and everything ends out nice and neat. I think what's happening in Jonah's book is that we keep climbing all the way to the end, and we sort of don't reach the pinnacle or the climax till the last chapter and the last verse. And sort of Jonah ends with no real resolution. We're sort of standing now at the mountaintop when we'll get to verse 11 with this great view, and then we've got to make up um, where we go from there. So it's a great story. We're working our way through to the end. We're going to get to verse 11 in two weeks. But this week we're in chapter 4, verses 5 through 8. Let me pray, and then we'll consider God's word together. Father, as we sang, I pray to you now, my gracious Master and my God, assist me to proclaim, to spread through all the earth abroad and even among this gathered assembly the honors of your name. Let Jesus be exalted. Let our souls be drawn to him. Let the Spirit do the work of convicting us of sin and leading us to righteousness and glorifying Jesus and taking what is his and giving it to us, all of what you promised that the Spirit would do. Do that in this time, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so Jonah 4, 5 through 8. Let me just give you a review or a refresher, especially for those of you that are new and joining in with us. We've been in the book of Jonah, the story of this prophet of God who was called by God to go to this evil, wicked, nasty, vile city called Nineveh. There's just one problem in the story. Jonah hates Nineveh, doesn't want to go to Nineveh, and so Jonah goes left where God has called him to go right. Jonah heads a thousand miles in the opposite direction. He's going to get on this ship headed to Tarshish, which is going to be for him this safe haven and this refuge and this place of comfort. Only God pursues Jonah as he runs and does so through this great storm. And so you see that Jonah's ship is basically tossed about by the winds and the waves as God's pursuing him. Jonah is eventually thrown overboard into the sea as he's drowning. The Lord appoints or prepares this great fish to swallow this prophet. He's in the belly of the fish now for three days and three nights and offers this great prayer of thanksgiving to God for his salvation and his deliverance and he's got a change of mind and then the Lord supernaturally has preserved him for three days now orders that the fish spit him out and Jonah's now standing vomited onto the dry land where he receives a command from God a second time calling him to go to Nineveh this time he goes preaches a short five-word sermon and the city repents 120,000 or more men women children turn to God, turn away from their sin, repent and believe in God. The city is saved. Salvation has struck Nineveh glorious. And then we said last week, you would imagine that chapter 4 would be this party, this festival, this feast, this celebration, mission accomplished. Instead, chapter 4 takes this nasty left turn and Jonah is angry, exceedingly angry, angry enough to die. 
And so in the first four verses, we find that Jonah has voiced his complaint and his concern to God. He's angry about Nineveh. He's angry at God. And we pick up the story in verse 5. That's where we are. Look with me. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. So here's Jonah. He's now made his way outside the city. Revival has broken out in the city. People all in the streets rejoicing in God and he wants nothing to do with it. So he leaves the city, goes outside the city, and makes for himself a makeshift shelter. He's got his own private resort on the east side of the city. And he's sort of just watching to see what's going to happen to the city. He's waiting. He's watching. You picture him sort of on a hilltop or some sand dune just overlooking the city, waiting to see what's going to happen. The irony here, and we've said that irony runs throughout the four chapters of Jonah, the irony is his prayer, his heart, is exactly opposite to the prayers that God has been listening to throughout this book. Right In chapter 1 with the sailors on the ship, or chapter 3 with the pagans in the city, their prayer is, let's pray to God because who knows, perhaps he will give a thought to us and our city might not perish. Right? Who knows? Maybe God will give us a thought and we might not perish. What's Jonah's heart? Jonah's waiting. Jonah's watching. Because his heart is, who knows? Maybe God will give me a thought and the city will perish. Right? It's very interesting. He's done with his job. He could go home now. He doesn't have to stick around in Nineveh anymore. He hates the city. He doesn't like revival. He could head for Israel, but he doesn't. He sticks around near Nineveh to watch to wait, to see. Who knows, maybe Nineveh's repentance will be short-lived and, and they'll be proven to be frauds and who knows, perhaps God will give a thought to me and the city will be destroyed after all. Whatever the case, he's got his private resort on the hilltop overlooking the city and you picture him just sort of waiting. Maybe looking this way to see if in the distance there's an army coming or some band of raiders, maybe as a sign of God's judgment to destroy the city. Maybe then after some time he looks that way, hoping to see on the horizon maybe this swarm of locusts or some kind of pestilence, some kind of disease that's going to destroy the city. Maybe after some time he's, he strains upward, sort of squints at the sun, hoping that just a fireball from heaven would drop and consume and light up the city. Whatever the case, he's waiting, watching to see what would become of the city. And as he does so, he's in a great deal of discomfort. That's what the next verse will tell us. Look at verse 6. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Here's what's happening. Jonah's watching, Jonah's waiting, and God is about to give Jonah a parable. Only it's not a parable with words. It's a parable that Jonah will play a part in. It's a parable that Jonah will, will experience. It's a visual parable. Because God is still hoping to reach this prophet's heart and teach him a good lesson. Even in chapter 4, God is pursuing Jonah. That should sort of strike us. Because some eight weeks back, when we were in chapter 1, we preached that God is pursuing the prophet and the pagans. And even now, we're about three verses from the end, and God is still pursuing Jonah, hoping to capture his heart. 
And again, the great irony is he's already captured the pagans. The city has responded. The idolaters have come to God. And the only one sort of standing outside the city, arms folded, angry, is Jonah. And again, if you know your New Testament, your mind sort of races forward to the stories that Jesus tells. Luke 15, Jesus tells the story that we've referenced before of the prodigal son and the elder brother, a father who has two sons, one wayward, wicked, spends his money on wine and women, and then he repents and comes home. And inside the house is a great party, a great feast, a great celebration, and who's not there? The moral, righteous, good, Bible-believing older brother who's standing outside angry that dad would show mercy to someone like him. Right? There's a party inside because the sinner has come home, but the righteous one is standing outside angry. But how does that story end? The father has enough grace and compassion in his heart to go to the older brother and to plead with him and to say, come inside. What this is, it belongs to you. You should be a part of this. This is who I am. This is what I'm about. You should be inside. This is for you too. And it's the same thing here in Jonah 4. It's as if God has gone out. The city is already celebrating, rejoicing, a party because salvation has come to the city. And yet now God goes to the hillside where his religious older brother is standing, arms folded, angry, and says, come inside, Jonah. That's what I'm about. You should be in there with me. This is what my mission is about. And you should be a part of it. But Jonah's angry. And so as God is trying to teach this lesson, he's going to do so through this parable of this growing vine. In verse 6 he says, He appoints a plant to provide shade for Jonah to save him from his discomfort. Again, the irony here is that word discomfort is the same word that's used in 3 verse 10 to speak of the disaster that Nineveh was saved from. Same word. So God saves Nineveh from their disaster. 4 verse 1, Jonah is exceedingly angry. But 4 verse 6, God saves him from his disaster, his discomfort, and Jonah is exceedingly glad. You think of that. I mean, this is the first time in the entire book of Jonah where the guy smiles. The first time that he's happy in the whole book. Till now, he's got a frown permanently put on his face. <clears throat> and now, 4 verse 6, first time he's happy. You think of that. God has just finished saving an entire city. 120,000 men, women, boys and girls who are not going to be slaughtered, who are not going to be destroyed, who have been saved. And Jonah's angry. But now an overgrown daisy grows behind him, and Jonah is exceedingly glad. I have no idea if it was a daisy or not. Uh, we don't know really what plant it was. In fact, some scholars say that the original language, it probably was a plant called a castor oil plant, a plant that grew in that day, a plant that in Jonah's time and even behind, before, during the ancient Egyptians, was a plant that was actually used as a laxative. I heard a preacher say that perhaps God was sort of poking fun at Jonah, saying, Jonah, you got to relax, buddy. you got to let this thing pass. You're really tightly bound. And so Jonah's not happy till finally this ex-lac plant grows over him, right? Jonah's happy. But his happiness <clears throat> will be short-lived. Look at verse 7 and 8. 
But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. So here's Jonah. He's stayed up watching, waiting to see what's going to happen to the city. Eventually he falls asleep. And daybreak the next day at dawn, God appoints a little worm to come and attack Jonah's plant. And it withers and it perishes. And again, the irony. Here Jonah is waiting to see if Nineveh will be attacked, to see if it will wither and perish. And yet all the attacking and all the withering and all the perishing is for Jonah's little plant. And as if that weren't enough, God then turns up the heat on his prophet. Quite literally, he appoints a scorching east wind to beat down on the head of Jonah, the sun to beat down on Jonah's head. So imagine Jonah, he's sitting in the middle of Nineveh, which is ancient Iraq. He's sitting in the middle of the Iraqi desert, hot, sun beating down on him, now a scorching east wind. Even to this day, they say that winds can take up to 60 miles an hour in that place. So 60 mile an hour winds gusting the hot desert sand, the hot desert heat into his face, the sun beating down on him, and Jonah is miserable. And if you look at verses 6, 7, and 8, what you find is all these harsh words, words like attacked, withered, scorching, beat down, these words ironically are not directed to the pagans, they're directed to the prophet. And finally Jonah's had enough, and he's grown faint, and he's angry, angry enough to die. And so for the second time in chapter 4, he asked God, just put me to death. I've had enough. It's better for me to die than to live. And what you're going to see as you keep reading in the story is that even now, this is not the death wish of a guy who's just suffered and can't take anymore. It's rather the defiant scream, fists into the heavens, of an angry man who says, I'd rather die than have it happen your way. Jonah's still angry. So at this point in the story, one of the questions you've got to ask is, what is God doing? Right? What's God up to? Because it seems like God is sort of, you know, poking Jonah and he won't stop and he's annoying Jonah. He's sort of like playing with Jonah, sort of toying with Jonah, even tormenting and torturing Jonah. What is God doing? And I think one of the things that we've been hinting at throughout this whole series, but one of the things that we want to make plain before we leave this series is that Jonah's God is a great God. A great God. Great not just even in terms of his character, but great in terms of his power. God is a great God. Right all throughout this series, we've been using that word gadol, the Hebrew word we kept seeing throughout the story. And we described everything as great and gadol. There's a great fish and a great city and a great storm and a great chain, a great hatred. Last week, a great hypocrisy. But the one thing Jonah won't let you leave without saying is that the one who is truly Gadol is God. God is great. God is huge. God's power is great. God's purposes are great. God's plan is great. God's pursuit of Jonah and Nineveh is great. God is great. Another way to say that is God is sovereign. 
Meaning he's the king, he rules, he runs the show, he calls the shots, he is boss over everything. You're not going to get out of the book of Jonah, much less chapter 4, without seeing that God is great. That his awesome infinite power is at work to accomplish his awesome purposes, to fulfill his awesome plans for his awesome pleasure. As he pursues prophet and pagan for his glory and their good. If you look closely at chapter 4, you're going to hear, you're going to bump into God's greatness, God's sovereignty over and over again. In fact, listen to these three words from, I said my V's and W's there. These three words from 6, 7, and 8, right? Now the Lord God, listen for the word repeated over and over again. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah. Verse 7. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant. Verse 8, when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind. Do you hear it? Remember, we said Jonah is four chapters, 48 verses. He does not waste words. And so when he uses a word, it's important. When he repeats a word, it's doubly important. And three times in the span of three verses, he wants you to hear God appointed. God appointed the plant to grow. God appointed the worm to attack the plant. God appointed the wind to blow in Jonah's direction. God has appointed it all. This, this picture of an ambassador chosen by God, selected by him to do his bidding and his will. And as you look through the story again, chapters 1 through 4, what you're going to see is this is not the first time you see the word or hear that idea. In fact, if you look left to the page on the left to chapter 1 in verse 17, you read, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And so what Jonah wants you to hear is throughout this story, whether you're talking about the winds or the waves or the whale or the worm or the vine, I did it that time, God is appointing it all, right? God is behind all of it. God is appointing everything. His invisible hand is directing and permitting and ordaining and appointing and controlling all that happens in Jonah's life and Jonah's story. Right? Chapter 1. You see it throughout the whole thing. God hurls a storm. And we said back then the, the language is of a javelin thrower who's throwing a javelin to hit his mark. And the storm God hurls, wouldn't you know, it hits the exact man God wants to hit. Or in chapter 1, verse 7, if you remember, they're on the ship and, and the sailors are throwing dice, casting lots to see whose fault this is. And wouldn't you know, the dice falls exactly on Jonah. And you're sort of left going, what are the chances? There's no chances at all. Proverbs 16.30 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Did you hear that? The lot is cast but its decision is from the Lord. And so you roll the dice, but the dice does not fall randomly because the dice falls and points to the exact man that God wants to point to. God's sovereignty, God's greatness is everywhere. God hurls a storm and it hits the exact ship on the exact sea to the exact man that God wants it to hit. The dice is thrown, it points to the exact man God wants to point to. A whale comes into the ocean at just the exact time to swallow the exact man that God wants swallowed. A vine grows up in Iraq 
and it grows up exactly over the head of the man that he wants it to grow over. A worm comes into that country and eats the exact plant that God wants it to eat. A wind blows and it blows on the face of the exact man that God wants to blow his wind on. God is great and he appoints and directs and ordains and controls everything that is happening in this story. He is ruler over it all, king of everything, lord of all of his creation. So when he hurls a storm or commands a whale or grows a plant or sends a worm or blows the wind, he does so how he wills, when he wills, for what he wills. Because God is sovereign and Lord and in control and in charge. So no wonder it's right for Jonah to say, as he does in chapter 1, I fear the Lord who made the sea and the dry land. Because if Jonah is going to show you one thing in this book, it's that God is Lord of it all. He controls the mighty winds and waves of the waters. He controls and rules over the great beasts of the sea. He rules over and controls the gusts of wind over the dry land. He rules over down to the smallest creeping, crawling worm. He is God over it all. And all of creation are His subjects to do His will, to accomplish His purposes and His plans and His will. And as you pan out from the book of Jonah, what you're going to find is that the rest of Scripture echoes the same thing over and over again. As if the rest of scriptures joins in this chorus to say, God is sovereign, and God is great, and God rules. Listen, just listen with your ears to Psalm 135, 5 and 6. For I know that the Lord is great, that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does, in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does. Psalm 115, 2 and 3. Why should the nations say, where is their God? So here's the psalmist. He's saying, why do the nations ask us, where is your God? Here's his response. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. You want to know where God is? He's in the heavens and everything you see, He does as He pleases. God is sovereign, rules over all his creation. But not just every beast and bird and tree and sea. God rules over all of humanity. From the king to the commoner, the powerful man to the peasant, God rules over them all. Listen to Proverbs 21 verse 1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. Do you hear that? You think that rulers and governments and princes and powers, kings and presidents rule the earth. And Proverbs says the king's heart is in the, in the Lord's hand. It's like a stream and he directs it wherever he wills. But not just the king, down to the lowly of us, down to every one of us. Because here Proverbs 19, 21. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. What's the Proverbs saying? We've all got plans. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it's the purpose of the Lord that will stand. You see, we've all got this illusion that we're in charge, 
that we run the show, that we call the shots. We're captains of our own soul. We're masters of our own fate. We direct our destiny. We establish our own steps. We demand and direct where our lives are going to go. And we hate and we scoff and we chafe at the idea that someone else is calling the shots, even if it be God himself. You see, one of the things that you're going to learn about Jonah in these four chapters is Jonah's offended now not only by God's character, but now by God's control. Right? In 4 verses 1 through 4, you saw him offended by who God is. Right? He says, you're a God merciful and gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love to those Ninevites. And so God's character offends him. Now, God's sovereignty, God's control offends him. Because Jonah hates the idea that God is running this show. Right from the beginning of the story, it sort of now makes sense that what Jonah keeps running into is the cold, hard truth that he's not in charge. That this is someone else writing this story. Because if you study Jonah, what you're going to see is this man is convinced that he knows what's best. And he knows what should happen. That's what you're going to find. From chapter 1 on, Jonah knows what should happen. And if only God would consult with him, everything would go right. In chapter 1, God calls him to go that way, and so Jonah runs that way. Because Jonah knows what's best. Jonah knows what's going to keep him safe and his people safe. He knows where his refuge is going to be. He's headed for Tarshish because he knows what's best. And it's a very painful lesson in Jonah's life for him to learn you are actually safest wherever God leads you. You're not safest by inventing your own refuge. You're actually safest wherever the Lord leads. That His will is actually the safest place to be. That if it's in the city, it's safer than inventing your own refuge and safe haven. But Jonah knows best. And so Jonah's going to go to Tarshish. He gets on a ship and he's headed in that direction. And God has to send a great tempestuous storm to scream at Jonah, you're not in charge. You're not going there. So then Jonah's on the boat and he says, if I'm not going there, then throw me overboard because I'm going to die before I go there. And God has to literally send a 40-ton beast to get Jonah to hear, do you get it yet? You're not running this show. You're not calling the shots here. You will go where I will send you. And you're either going to go obediently or you're going to go rebelliously, but you're going to go because my will will be done. Right? Every man is going to go down in history either like Jonah or like Jesus. Right? You're going to accomplish God's will. His plans will never be thwarted. The only question is, will your story, will your legacy be, I ran and God did what he was going to do anyway, or I submitted and I obeyed and God was glorified through my humble story. Because God's will and God's purposes and God's plans will be accomplished. Throughout this whole story, Jonah knows what's best. He knows what he needs to do, and then what you get is Jonah knows what everyone needs to do. He knows what Nineveh needs. They need a big fireball to consume them. He knows what God needs to do. He needs to send that fireball. And when life is not working as he wants it to, finally Jonah knows what he needs. Because he says to God in verse 8, it's better for me to die than to live. Right? What's he saying? God, I know what's best for me now. And it's death 
because I'd rather die than live this out and play this out the way you want it to go. I know what's best for me too. And here's the thing. It's as if Jonah keeps bumping into this thing called the sovereignty of God at every corner. With every step he takes, he keeps bumping into and running into the sovereignty of God. And when he does, what happens? What's his response when he keeps bumping into the cold, hard truth that he's not in charge? He gets angry. Tell me if that resonates or relates. I want you to think back to the last time you were angry at God. I have no idea what that circumstance was or what that situation was. I'm not trying to make light of it or dull it down. I have no idea what that issue was. But I can almost bet that what happened is that you bumped into the sovereignty of God. You bumped into the cold, hard truth, or I want to suggest the warm, sweet truth that you are not in control and that God is. You get angry because essentially, like Jonah, what you're saying is, this life should go how I says it should go. I say it should go. I know what's best in this situation. And if you would but consult with me, I could make this thing come out right. Our anger, our frustration is rooted from us bumping into the sovereignty of God. At some point, God does what you don't want Him to do or God won't do what you want Him to do and so you get frustrated and you get angry because life is not going the way that you know that it needs to go. And here's the thing. Sooner or later, but eventually and inevitably, you are going to bump into the sovereignty of God. You're going to run into the fact that you're not in control. And at that point, you've got one of two choices. You can either recognize you are not in control. I'll say that again. You are not in control. You are not in control. I feel like you would say to me, Ajay, Ajay, I get it. Listen to me. You are not in control. Not of your family, not of your health, not of your wealth, not of your career. You are not in, in control. You're not in charge. And when you come to realize that, you're either going to rejoice that God is good and God is in control, or you're going to go on pretending that you are. I'll say that again. You're going to continue pretending because you're not. You're either going to convince yourself and continue to deceive yourself and live in the illusion that you are in charge or you're going to recognize that you're not. Right? Even in circles like these, we say things like, I've just got to give this part of my life to God. I've got to let Him have control of it. And I think what the Scriptures want us to say is, you don't have to give it to Him because He already has it. And all you have to do is acknowledge that you never did. It's not that I'm going to give him control of this. It's finally acknowledging I never had it to begin with. And he always did. Because you're not in control. You're not in charge. You're not sovereign. God calls the shots. God is sovereign. God is in charge. And the testimony of the scriptures is that God's purposes and God's plans and God's will will always be accomplished. And here's what I want to say for us as we wrap up. That would be a terrifying thought 
if you didn't know who God was and who God is. Right? If you've got this God of infinite power who is omniscient and omnipotent in the heavens and He does whatever He pleases, that would be the most scariest thought in the world if you didn't know who God was and who God is. Right? If you've read any Greek mythology, you know that this is the, the fear in the human heart is that you've got some gods in the heavens with infinite power and they're sort of immature and whimsical and capricious and they use human beings as a game as pawns in their own game and they just do whatever they want. The idea that God is sovereign should terrify us if we didn't know who God is and who God was. Because tell me, how does God use sovereignty, display His sovereignty in Jonah's story? It, it's not out to ruin him. It's actually out to rescue him. God's not out to destroy Jonah in this book. God's actually destroying the things that destroy Jonah. Right? God's not trying to destroy Jonah. God's just trying to destroy the things that are destroying Jonah. Right? Just a cursory read of this book and you begin to see that it's obvious that hate is choking Jonah's heart. That self-righteousness is so tightly wound around his heart that it's literally killing him. He's asked for death. These things that he holds on to so tightly are literally destroying him so that he wants death. He wants control so badly that if he's not in control, he'd rather die. He is suicidally mad by the very things he wants to hold closest to his heart. Do you see that? The idols and things that you hold closest to your heart, you think they're what you need to live and in turn they're destroying you. So that like Jonah, you'd say, I'd rather die than not have this thing. And God's trying to destroy the things that are destroying you. God's trying to rescue Jonah, not ruin him. And deliver him, not harm him. God's sovereignty is used for God's glory and Jonah's good. Right? It would be hatred for the father to leave the older brother outside. But true love is the father going out and pursuing his son. And love for Jonah is pursuing this prophet. And so wind and wave and whale and vine and worm and all of that is not out to harm Jonah. It's out to rescue Jonah from the things that are ruining him. We should be terrified of the thought that God is sovereign except for the fact that we know who He is. And tell me as we close, what is the greatest display of God's sovereignty? What's the greatest example of God's plan being fulfilled exactly as He had planned it? What's the greatest display of God putting together the pieces to accomplish the very purpose and plan that He wanted to accomplish? I'll tell you from Acts chapter 4. You can just listen. The apostles pray this prayer. Sovereign Lord, those are our words, who made heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them. This is what they pray. In this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, and listen to this, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. The greatest display of God's sovereignty, of God's power, of God's plan coming to fit together perfectly is not him crushing a man, but him crushing the God-man. And not him ruining you, but ruining Jesus for you. The greatest display of all the pieces coming together is Jesus on the cross. 
so that the apostles say, Sovereign Lord, Judas played his part, and Pontius Pilate played his part, and Herod played his part, and the Jews played their part, and the Gentiles played their part, and they're all responsible, but they all did what you had predestined and planned to take place, which was to have your own son slaughtered rather than us. The greatest display of God's sovereignty is not to use you as a pawn in his game, but rather to send his own son to the cross for your sake a plan that he put together from before the foundation of the world, a plan that he unveiled in Genesis 3 and said the seed of the woman is coming, and that from Abraham and David and this man went to that place and had this child so that by the end, Joseph and Mary give birth to this man, Jesus the Christ, who lives the exact life that God had appointed for him so that he's in the exact place and at the exact time to die the exact death that God had sovereignly planned for him, for your sake. That is the sovereignty of God. So that you can trust that his purposes and his plans, they will be accomplished and they will give him glory, but they will be for your good. Because he crushed his son sovereignly for your sake. And Jesus went through all of that, submitted to God's will. Right? You remember him in the garden. Father, take this cup from me. I can't bear your sovereignty. I don't know if I can take this plan of yours, but your will be done. And your story will either be that of Jesus or Jonah because God's going to accomplish his plans for your life. It's either going to be known through your rebellion or through your obedience. God is gadol. God is great. God is sovereign. God appoints what would your life look like if you actually believed that? Maybe you'd worry less. Or maybe you'd be afraid of the future less because you'd actually believe the one who holds your future. Maybe you'd take risks and do the things that God is calling you to do because God is sovereign and has your steps and your safest where He wills you to be. Maybe it would change your whole life. God is good dole. God is great. God is sovereign. What would your life look like if you actually believed that? Let's pray. We thank you, our Father, because in your great sovereignty, you planned and predestined for your Son, Jesus Christ, to be crushed on the cross for our sake. We thank you, Jesus, that you sat in that garden and you wept and the anguish of your soul under God's sovereignty was so great that it says that you sweat blood. We don't pretend today that it's easy to submit to the will of God, to recognize what it is that you're doing, what it is that you're appointing, what it is that you're directing, what it is that you're permitting, allowing, ordaining in our lives. We don't pretend that's easy. But we look to Jesus who knew it wasn't easy, who literally sweat blood in the anguish of his soul over the plan that you had for him, but ultimately found that there is greater pleasure in doing your will than going his own way, and ultimately endured the cross for the joy set before him, despising its shame, as Hebrews tells us, who ultimately said, Father, not my will, but yours be done. And as we see the story closed, we know that there's a good ending to the story. 
Father, I want to pray for my brothers and sisters here. Some of them are in the midst of the storm. Some of them feel like they're drowning in the sea. Some of them feel like they've been saved, but it doesn't look like the salvation they imagined. They're in a tight underbelly of a whale. Some of them feel like there was finally some shade growing over their head, and now it seems like you've taken even that away from them. Some of them feel like it'd be better to die than to go on. Oh Lord, would you convince us through Jonah's story that even though we don't see how you will write the conclusion, you are writing a good story even with us. A story in which you sent your own son to the cross for our sake. A story in which you harmed yourself rather than to harm us. You let disaster fall on Jesus rather than disaster to fall on Jonah, on the Ninevites, on us. And so we pray that you would encourage us by who you are and that today you might even free us to rejoice in your sovereign rule, to relinquish and recognize that we're not in control and that we're not in charge, but that we have a good God who is. And to rejoice with the psalmist as we say, our God is in the heavens. He does as he pleases. In Jesus' name, amen.